0: Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today, our guest is Drew Niffin. And he has a background as an investment banker. He's also began his real estate investing journey back in 2008. And currently, he's the president of Nighthawk Equity, which currently oversees $75 million of investor capital and controls over $280 million in assets. So Drew, welcome to the show. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks, Eileen. I'm glad to be here.
0: So, Drew, can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got into real estate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I think like a lot of people, I did "quote unquote" the right thing and went to college and worked hard and got grades. And out of college, um, worked at a company. I was in finance for a while, and uh, ultimately went back to graduate school. Right? So, I'm kind of following that very common good path that so many people are familiar with. Um, and in graduate school, I floundered around a little bit. I started in public policy school. Um, quickly found out that wasn't the thing for me, and then went into law school. I did law school, finished a law degree, did well in my in my school, passed the bar exam, was a licensed attorney, and quickly realized that ordering my life around six minute uh, billable increments was not a lovely uh, way to live. Uh, and so, I actually found that out during law school. So, in law school, I combined that law degree with an MBA, and when I got to my MBA it was that aha moment for me. I was like this is what I was meant to do. Um you know, I come from a baseball family. We always talk about the baseball mitt that just feels right in your glove. When I went to business school, I was like this is the thing I was meant to do. Right? So very excited came out of business school. Again, I finished with the law degree but never formally practiced and went straight into the corporate side of things and really enjoyed that. Uh I worked in investment banking on the sell side, so I was selling small businesses on behalf of inventors who had started a business and grown it to a certain size. I learned a lot in that space that carried over into the real estate world, but I didn't realize that until later on. So I'm doing investment banking for a couple of years and my wife and I are also starting to have a family. And investment banking, the better you are, you get promoted and you get expected to work more hours, right? So it's like a a blessing punishment where it's like, oh, you're great. So you could work not 50 hours a week, but you could work 70 hours a week. And that was not like what I wanted to do, right? I-, I knew that that wasn't the path that I wanted to be on. Even though I liked that space, I liked finding an operating company, figuring out how you could structure it well, looking at the PL, looking for efficiencies, thinking about new markets that I could go into. That was fascinating for me. I loved that. But the actual career inside investment banking was not where I wanted to go. I knew that that wasn't the right thing for me. And I could feel this tension between what the kind of corporate world and my investment banking world said about what was the right direction forward and kind of where my uh, North Star was. Right. So out of that, I switched into a Fortune 500 company where you're basically doing investment banking in-house. You're looking at joint ventures, you're looking at analyses, possible acquisitions, but you're doing it more from a kind of a traditional corporate world rather than the banking world. So the stresses are less. And I was there for a number of years. It was really neat. I got to travel uh, to different continents and work with different cultures and their businesses. But what I found there was that I was being successful based upon more around uh, corporate politics than around my work itself. Right. So on the one hand, I was discouraged from pointing out things that were wrong with our small group because it would make us sort of look bad to a larger organization. So we were discouraging getting better. And that I found sort of obnoxious. And on the other hand, even you know, if I did a really good job on something and I, I I figured out a great deal, I worked really hard on a project. They were like, good job, your salary increase is 2.5%, you know, this year. It just felt like there was a disconnect between what I ought to do and results. So amongst all that, I decided to get into real estate. In my mind at that time, it was not even a career path. You know, there's the blackstones of the world on Wall Street. And I was just trying to like buy a three-bedroom, two bath house. So I started doing this on the side for fun. Uh, and I bought a single family and then a duplex. And I had a buddy that was also into this. And we just chat about it together. You know, some, some people like to talk about sports or what's going on in popular culture. And I was just interested in this on the side just for fun. Uh, never thinking again that it could become a career. And then, long story short, one deal led to the next, led to the next. And we're buying a six and we're buying a nine. Uh, we're buying another triplex. We bought a 25 unit, a 32, and all of a sudden, you could kind of see where the story was going. Um, and so it's at that point that I stepped back from the W two world that I started to like less and less, and pursue this full time. So that was 2014 when I made the switch, and I'm happy to share more about that. But at a high level, that was my journey from you know college student to W two career to full-time in real estate.
0: It's interesting because when you're in the corporate world, typically when you move up in management, you start to see that it's more and more about the politics aspects of it. And it's a little bit more challenging to get things moving around because what you're thinking about and what your plans are doesn't necessarily fully align to what the corporate goals are going to be. And so that's where you start to see the disconnect. And then, you know, as an employee, sometimes you're looking up and then you see your boss's boss and you think to yourself, is that where I want to be 5, 10 years down the road? Is that the job that I want?
1: Yeah. An aha moment for me right along those lines, Eileen, was uh, I was talking to my my father-in-law who had, who had a career that was very much in management, right? And in larger corporations, he worked for General Electric, etc. And I said to him one time, I was like, you know, I do not want to... Uh, climb the corporate ladder and have 20 people reporting to me. That's not, that does not sound enjoyable to me. And it, it was almost like I had told him that I don't love his daughter anymore, right? It was this, <laughs> this look like total shock, right? Because that was his idea of what you do. And I was just a little bit in tune with but kind of what I valued. And I said that to him and it was very freeing because I was acknowledging where I was at and what I wanted to do. And it was a diversion from that normal path. And it was only in the days after I said that, that I realized how true that was and how liberating it was. And yeah, right. So to your point, the corporate world has one direction, and that's great if you love it. But so many people, they're so bathed in it. It's like fish in water. You're so used to it, you don't even realize it. You're so bathed in that corporate culture that you just go there. That's what you're expected to do or told to do. And it takes some awareness of what drives you, at least it did for me to say, I'm going to zig when other people are zagging.
0: It's kind of hard too, because when you're in that environment and you're not exposed to other things out there, you don't know what's out there. And so you just follow this path thinking that this is the one and only path because it's tried and true.
1: Absolutely. I just did a, a meetup up here in Seattle this week, and you're hanging out with 13 other people, all of whom really love real estate. And you're like, I'm with my tribe. These people get me. Like, I know how they think. They know how I think. And often in this space, um, you're sort of an anomaly. When you're hanging out with your friends who are W two people, and I don't mean that in a negative way, they're just their perception of the world is, is very different. And so, when you're around people that get it, it's very empowering because you're you're with people that think like you.
0: So when you started buying, you know, the single family houses, duplexes, triplexes, and multi-unit properties, um, was that all on your own or was that with partners? And then at what point did you start looking for partners?
1: Yeah, it was uh, the first one was on my own and then everything else was with partners.
0: Okay. So then the the single family was on your own. And then once you've gotten to like the duplexes and bigger properties, that's when you started having the partners.
1: That's basically right. And and again, these were not syndications. They were not formal deals where I was taking investors. They're just me and two or three other friends and saying, let's put our money together and buy this thing together. And we did that because, first of all, it's more fun to do it with, with people. Second of all, you can sort of outsource things you don't like, right? Like some people are more into the operations. Some people are more into finding the deals. And so you just sort of, you, you can share each other's strengths. And then finally, you sort of hold each other accountable, right? Because if it's just me, I might be like, oh, I'm kind of busy. I'm just going to go ride my bike today. But if I know that I have something that I'm supposed to you know, give to my peer who also put in money, I'm going to work harder to sort of honor that person. And so we sort of sort of sharpened each other in that sense. So yeah, it was just a very few deals were by myself, maybe maybe two or so over the years. But it was partners, and there was some other partners. Uh, there was one deal where I think there was seven guys involved, and then eventually, you know, unless you're Elon Musk, you run out of your own money, and you got to figure out how to do it with with investors' money. And over time, that's how I got to the point where I was doing syndications and actually taking people's, you know, money as legal investments and putting them to work in future apartment buildings.
0: When you bought the first single family home and then after that got into the partnerships, was that a challenge for you from doing something on your own to now, you know, financially being tied to another person or two? Uh,
1: it wasn't being hard to be tied to other people because honestly, I trusted them. You know, it's like uh, you always want to be the dumbest person in the room. I have some family members who are sailors and they say, you never want to be the best sailor on the boat, right? Right. And so, in in a partnership, it's really great to be with people that you think are smart, are capable, uh, that have good instincts, that have good analytical skills, that are very diligent. Uh, And and so, I always enjoyed that. I always felt stronger together, as long as you're paired with good people. Um, That was a little twist on your question, Eileen, but it was a little bit of a challenge, um, just maritally, right? So. I was the conventional thing you do in the W2 world is you're you're a good person and you take that 3% or 4% of your W2 paycheck and you just put it into the 401k. You put it in the mutual fund, right? And so I was starting to not do that. I was having this kind of red pill, blue pill moment where I was like, what if I just go buy a house over here? And corporate America doesn't tell you to do that. Wall Street, which has billions of dollars to tell you to give your money to them so they can look after it, make their asset management fees. They don't tell you that. And there isn't billions of dollars in the alternative asset world to educate you about the opportunities in buying single family homes. So it was very scary and concerning, like in my marriage, when I first started doing this, because it was such a departure from what you're quote unquote supposed to do. And so that's where it wasn't the partnerships that was kind of challenging, but mindset wise doing this, was a big departure and required a lot of thought, a lot of conversation to get the whole family on board with these ideas.
0: that poses an interesting question, especially when you have a partner that's involved as well. Um, When one person wants to do something financially and it doesn't really necessarily align what the other person wants to do, um, just because of the lack of knowledge or education for that space, how did you start to build that knowledge gap? And how did you... How were you able to get on the same page with your spouse?
1: Yeah, so we actually at our at Nighthawk Equities big event each year at Dealmaker Live, we actually had a, a a couples panel we brought up couples and we talked about these issues. And there's different degrees of engagement by the partner that's not too involved, right? There's some that just totally space out, some get a little bit involved, and some become uh, you know equally yoked together, right? They're both in it. And honestly, I probably didn't do a very good job. I found the home <laughs> and I think I just wired the money to buy the place because I was so convinced that was the right call. And I was like, oh, hey, sweetheart, we we just bought a, a rental house. You know, so that's probably something you don't want to do. But it's like any other issue in a relationship is uh, you got to communicate it. You got to explain it. You got to listen and be sensitive to the concerns and feedback of the other person. Uh, and then only try to explain them and tell them why you're aligned, like why this is good for us. Like we're a unified team trying to accomplish X goal together, financial freedom or passive income or retirement, however, you think about it, and why this gets you there better than the alternative. And not that I did this perfectly, but if the other person isn't on board, you probably need to explain it better, right? You don't want to win the battle and lose the war, right? So if you if you have an incrementally stronger monthly cash flow, but you now have a wrinkle in your important relationship, I would say that's a net loss. But it doesn't have to be, right? You just got to convince the person that it does make sense and explain to them why and take them along your journey of how you came to believe that the conventional method of the mutual fund 401k um, maybe isn't the right plan or that there's other options out there.
0: So on the real estate business partnership side of things, yep. were you meeting your partners through the meetups and networking events or how did you find the people that you felt you trusted in order to partner with them?
1: Yeah, so I was fortunate. These were essentially lifelong friends. And I was actually at that meetup that I was at this past week, someone asked me, "How do you find good partners?" I said, "Well, first of all, it's very helpful to meet people in three dimensions." Right? So the internet, social media is awesome for building some relationships, but to really know, like, and trust people, which I think is the criteria for engaging in partnerships, it's very helpful to actually spend time with them in person. And so that's that's a really important thing. And the other thing is, even if you get to know someone in person, they're still presenting themselves to you in the best light that they can, not unlike when you're going on a first date and you're trying to look your best, be your best, and your true self comes out over time right? And so there is no fast path to partnership, just like the farmer can't accelerate the corn growing more quickly. There's a natural path to these things. So you can be intentional about it. You ought to be intentional. You're getting to a hugely consequential financial relationship. You're going to buy an asset that's a half a million, a million, maybe millions of dollars. There's a phenomenal amount of responsibility and ongoing management after you buy it, and you can't liquidate it easily. It's not like a stock position where you can just press sell and it liquidates and comes to cash in your account in three days. It's illiquid. And so you need to really know who you're working with and you want to be intentional about it, but it can't happen fast. It does require long-term knowledge of each other. And that's why I tell people, if you can work with people that you've known even before you're interested in real estate. And if that's not possible, get to know them as well as you can, but there's going to be enhanced risk there.
0: So over the years, you were buying properties together with partners and um, you know, with a couple of different partners, friends, and other people within your network. At what point did you run out of money? And then how did you make that transition to starting to raise capital?
1: Yeah. I probably had 50, 60 units before I ran out of my own money. And again, those weren't all mine individually. It might've been with five other persons that I bought this 24 unit or this 12 unit. So everyone's situation is different. And also the unit count question... Is really different, right? If you're in Orange County, a unit is a lot different. You got to add an extra zero <laughs> compared to buying a unit in St. Louis. So my 60 units does not equal your 60 units. And, and that number can get generalized too much. But having said that, at about 60 units, it was like, okay, we got a very hard different plan here. Um, because the cash flow is a very slow moving machine, right? And so you're putting cash out more quickly than it's coming back to you. For my situation, I was fortunate. I ended up meeting someone online, uh, who ended up being my, to this day, business partner, Michael blunk And so we met together. I was on his a podcast a long, a long time ago, and we hit it off and just started emailing back and forth. And we decided to go to a conference together. Again, we went from two dimensions to three dimensions. And we got to hang out for a couple of days together. This is 2015 or 2016. And I could tell that he was an entrepreneur that sort of saw the future much farther ahead than I did. That's one of Michael's attributes is he really sees how things are playing out. And we just built a good rapport together. So I won't go through the whole story, but through working with him, I was able to learn more about syndications and how this works and begin growing the NIDOC equity business where we've raised, uh, I think, over $70 million in the last five, six years uh, together. We now have a third partner that we're with, uh, Garrett, who's phenomenal. And together, we are a really good team. And uh, there is a lot of trust. We've been through lots of highs and lows. And that's a long answer to your question. but, But essentially, I got into syndication and using other people's money through finding another partner that I trusted, and also that had the ability and platform to raise capital in a way that I did not have at that time.
0: When you first went into that realm, did you think that the company would grow to where it is today? Did you set your visions to to grow it to where it is now?
1: Yeah, I, I, we certainly set our visions on it, right? So you know, at one time, we always talked about the road to 10,000 units. That's where we wanted to go. I think that we've pivoted on that phrase because we've figured that actually, just having more assets on the balance sheet doesn't equal better. It might be better for the investors to have fifteen hundred units and cycle through ownership of certain assets once they reach maturity and you've pushed the value. So we've we've matured in what the goal is, but we did always set our sights high. I think again, Michael had this vision that I didn't, and he knew the scale of what this could become. And I was I was thinking maybe three months out, and he was thinking three years out, right? So, but together that actually works out well because one person is is really vision casting, and the other person is really just brass tacks, getting things done. And now with three partners, we're we're even better because we our skills align as far as the the timeline really beautifully.
0: So what's next for you and Nighthawk Equity?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So the market, as most of your listeners know, Eileen, has shifted a lot in the last 18 months. I mean, deals that made a lot of sense before um, don't make as much sense when interest rates have doubled. We're not gung-ho on multifamily no matter what. What we really want to be is a trusted provider of quality alternative investments uh, to people who have sort of seen the light and want to put their money to work in more tax advantage spaces in the real estate, commercial real estate world that has worked really well, right? So, for that reason, we're exploring things like loan products where people are investing their money and we're getting cash flow every single month, right? Things that have a lower risk profile where you have secured investment secured by real estate. Uh, so we're looking at things like this. We don't know exactly where it's going to land yet. But ultimately, if you're a restaurant, you don't want to serve one entree. You want to have a whole lot of options for different appetites. And if if you're nighthawk, you want to provide a lot of different investment options, depending on people's investment horizon, risk profile, whether they're more focused on appreciation over a decade or cash flow tomorrow. So we want to service those different needs. It's something that we've heard. Uh, in this time. And especially when deals right now in multifamily aren't underwriting too well, it's harder to make deals work. There's more unknowns. And yet there's still a lot of money that wants to get put to work. So something that might be more in that space of secured, uh, cash flowing, lower risk investments is is where the next thing is for us as we continue to look at multifamily deals.
0: So Drew, how has real estate and investing impacted your life?
1: Uh, tremendously. I mean, first of all, it's a lot of fun at a very simplistic level. I enjoy it. I feel more engaged than I did when I was sort of working for a W-2 company, right? So that's changed a lot. Second thing is time freedom, right? I won't say that I have tons of free time and I just play at the park with my kids every day. There's a tremendous amount of work to be done. And people that are looking at syndication shouldn't think that it's all rainbows and unicorns once you buy a deal. There's a tremendous amount of work to be done. But you're engaged in it because it's your asset. It feels like personal to you. And you also have the trust of your investors who you're looking after. Um, so I have a lot of commitments, a lot of my time commitments, but they're really fun. I'm really engaged in it. And I do have more freedom to work from my home, you know, take a lunch midday than I used to, uh, go for a walk with my wife you know, mid-afternoon and just talk about things. So I think a lot more ownership of my life. And then on the financial side, yeah, there's there's a balance sheet that's growing. You know, If you look at real estate as an investment space over decades, it's phenomenal. So whatever the last two years have done, I'm thinking about the next 20 years. I'm very confident in the long-term path of this space. So it's been phenomenal. It's something that anyone can get into. And I feel very fortunate to be in this space. And it's changed my life tremendously.
0: Andrew, what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started?
1: I'll give you two. Uh, it sounds cliche, but the partnerships matter so much. We talked about this, but you you do not want to get engaged in an asset where people, once the going gets tough, they leave. And I've seen that happen. And it's very debilitating to relationships. And it puts a huge demand on your time. So be careful who you partner with. That'd be number one. I feel very fortunate in that regard. And all of my deals that I've worked with have had good partners. Um, and the second thing is be aware of the capital structure of your deal. Be aware if your investment horizon, if your if your thesis is a seven-year thesis, see if your debt matches that timeline. And you really have two different things you're working on. You have the financial structure of your deal and the operations. And you probably want to focus on your operations and de-risk the financial side. Uh, and so that's a huge lesson learned for me that we're taking forward into the future. So if I could go back in time and change those two things or be aware of those two things, it would have reduced a lot of things that become hurdles over the years.
0: And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing?
1: The one thing, there's so many things, but the one thing would be consistency. You have to believe in the logic of multifamily and real estate investing to stay in it long term. Because there will be tough days where you're like, I don't know if this is the best thing. And in those days, the people that aren't consistent because they don't understand why there's such long-term value creation, they'll go to the next shiny object. But those who do understand and stick with it, I think that over time, they will be rewarded.
0: So Drew, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing in this space?
1: Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so I'd encourage people to go over there. It's Drew Niffin, and Niffin is with a K. Uh, We'll put it in the show notes here in, in this call. But I'm active there. You can DM me. Happy to talk with anyone that wants to ask more questions. Um, I really enjoy giving back to people that are starting, starting out on their journey.
0: Drew, thank you so much for all of your time. I appreciate it.
1: You bet it, I mean. Thanks so much.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast today. Brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review.